Welcome to Deeper Questions. I'm your host, Aaron Johnstone. We've jokingly called today's episode, What's Your Favourite Drink and Why Is It Single Malt Whiskey? Which no doubt says more about me than anyone else. Though I suspect there'll be plenty of people in my corner on this one. Sometimes on Deeper Questions, there'll be niche, and then there'll be next level niche, like today. Digging into a topic that is ridiculously particular and concentrated, but you might come in knowing absolutely nothing of what we're talking about. Well, if that's you today, then don't worry too much. I think we managed to handle it in a way that caters to people with no prior knowledge, people that associate whiskey with that unnatural burning sensation in my throat and chest, as well as some juicy bits for those who have a decent top shelf when it comes to whiskey. We've got a couple of the best with us today, and I'm honoured to call them friends. I've known both of today's guests for a long time and was delighted to have them as my first ever roundtable conversation. We cover quite a few topics, and I think there's enough general stuff in there for everyone to enjoy. Speaking of enjoyment, if you happen to have a decent scotch locked away, feel free to have a cheeky dram while you listen. No judgment here. No possible way of knowing either. I don't think my podcast app provides stats for that. Anyway, hope you enjoy the episode. Responsibly, of course. I feel like absolutely there's more women in the industry, but I still feel like there's so far to go. Definitely at the start, when there weren't that many women in the industry involved, a lot of people were surprised to see a 20-something-year-old young girl promoting beautiful, high-quality Tasmanian single malt whiskies. Today we have Jane Overing, the owner of Overing Distillery. She lives and breathes whiskey and has been heavily involved in the whiskey industry since her father, Casey Overeem, founded Overeem Distillery in 2007. She worked closely with her father distilling in the early years, and following this, she occupied a role as sales and marketing manager from 2011. During this time, Jane quickly built a loyal following for Overeem whiskey all around Australia, and after Casey's retirement in 2014, the Overeem family business was sold. But in 2017... Jane and her husband Mark had the opportunity to regain ownership of the family business with a long-term goal to take it into the future. Jane now manages the team along with marketing, events and distribution of Overeem Whiskey worldwide and is excited to grow the brand globally. They've already been recognised on the world stage, taking home awards from the World Whiskey Awards in 2019 and a gold medal in 2023 for their port cask, which is of course delicious. We also have Beck Palmier. Beck is the co-founder and head of creative and communications at Warbs Harbour Distillery. She co-founded the distillery over five years ago with her husband Tim and brother-in-law Rob and plays a big role in the forward-facing side of the business. Beck's background is in e-commerce, social media marketing and copywriting and after selling their successful online business back in 2015, Beck and Tim moved back home to Tasmania. They wanted to create something they were truly passionate about and something that was truly Tasmanian, which brings us to Warbs Harbour a maritime Tasmanian single malt whiskey distillery set on the edge of the ocean in Bishano on the far east coast of Tasmania. They opened to the public in 2023 and have won awards almost immediately, bringing home a master medal and two gold medals at the World Whiskey Masters 2023. Thanks for being part of our first round table. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. So let's kick off with uh, a light question. We've got to ask, what are your favourite drops of whiskey at the moment and what usually accompanies those whiskeys? That's a big question. That's like asking someone to choose their favourite child, <laughs> don't you reckon? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, oh, look, for me, we are researching different whiskies all the time, so I honestly cannot choose a favourite, but... I honestly have to say that my favourite whiskies do come from Overeem because I guess um, drinking your own whiskies and enjoying them, it's very satisfying. It's very enjoyable. So I would have to say Overeem whiskey and accompanying an Overeem whiskey would be chocolate on the couch Ooh, with a movie. Yeah. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> How about for you, Beck? Uh, yeah, I'm similar actually. We taste, uh, you know, I drink a lot of different whiskies. We're still, you know, relatively new in the scene and so we're drinking, you know, buying and drinking lots of different types of whiskies at the moment, um, lots of Tassie but also internationals. So don't have a particular favourite brand as such but I tend to go for the export cask. That's kind of my go-to, what I always come back to. I drink a lot of a bit of our Founders Reserve, which is a export cast strength whiskey at the moment. I will say the over-import cask is a very, very close one for me too. Um, 
Yeah, so that's my style. Nice. Lovely. And uh, do you guys like peated or non-peated? I do, actually. I've sort of grown to like it over the years. It was never something that I liked when I first started out on my whiskey journey, but I'm definitely changing over time. Yeah, I like a light peat for yeah. sure. I'm not into the big heavy peats, but yeah. but yeah, absolutely a little light peats, not too bad at all. Very nice. <laughs> and uh, could you both tell us how you got into whiskey um, and connected with that, the, the story of both Warbs Harbour and Overham as well? So Perhaps let's start with Jane, as your story goes back a bit further. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, my story goes back, I just said this yesterday to somebody, it actually goes back 18 years. I had my first whiskey conference, uh, tasting at a conference, when I was 18. So if you do the math, then you can figure out how old I am. Um, but that was 18 years ago, uh, just recently. So yeah, I was exposed to whiskey at a I guess a pretty early age uh, because my father founded a distillery back in 2007, which I have been involved in pretty much since the beginning. In 2007, uh, he got his distiller's license and started a distillery from home. And I was involved in the early years as a distiller, uh, but it wasn't really until about 2012 that I uh, became heavily involved when we launched our first whiskies. And that was when I was involved in a uh, sales and marketing capacity in the business. Yeah, cool. Um, so with Casey, he was obviously into whiskey for quite some time. Uh, do you know much about how he got into it? And Yeah, so he, for him, he actually started the distillery as a retirement hobby. Uh, so something to occupy his time into retirement and give him something fun to do. Uh, and he really, he had a passion for whiskey and he actually made himself a promise way back in the 80s that one day he would craft a or make a single malt whiskey that would stand alongside the best in the world. So it was a big, bold promise. That is. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't until he retired that he actually sort of, I guess, fulfilled that promise. Right. So that's when yeah. the, the time came. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The time came then because he had the time. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> so starting a distillery for him wasn't sort of motivated financially. It was just a, a passion project. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm, yeah. And how about for you, Beck? So fairly new undertaking. Tell us uh, the story of how you guys got into doing whiskey. Yeah, that's right. Well, our story is actually uh, connected with Jane's. So we've been, we were established about 2018. It's myself, my husband, Tim, and Tim's brother, Rob, who's our head distiller. And Rob actually trained under Casey Overham and worked with Mark and Jane as well. And so when he was learning to distill and going through the industry, he'd come around to Tim and I and go, taste this, taste this. We're doing some really exciting things. And he, you know, we were already whiskey drinkers, but he really got us into it over the years. And so kind of long story short, after working with those guys and a few other companies, he um, he left to start his own distillery. And it was one of those fortuitous timings that Tim and I were in a position where we were looking at new business ideas and we really wanted to do something Tasmanian and beautiful and exciting and and whiskey was the perfect thing and um, the three of us have teamed up and and it's a really it's a beautiful partnership yeah, yeah. so that's where we started but we're um so we're a maritime single malt whiskey up on the east coast of Tassie and Bishno um, and we're right on the water there so yeah that's how we came about mm. yeah all the the pictures and everything look quite spectacular and uh, and you only opened like this year to the public properly didn't you Yes. Yep. That's right. So we established, yeah, in about 2018. Um, so we're just over five years old, really, but we bought an old oyster hatchery. And so there was some renovation and then buying all of our equipment and custom making all of the gear and having it all installed. And it takes a really long time. And then, of course, once we did make our first whiskey, it sits in barrel to mature for years. Um so yeah, this earlier this year we released our official first releases. We've had an incredible response from customers, from industry, from our community. So we're in a really exciting place at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, lovely. I want to ask you guys. So being passionate Tasmanians, the impression I get is that not only Australian whiskey, but Tassie in particular, the scene is just going nuts on the world stage. Um, obviously, it's been dominated by Scotland, um, but it now just kind of seems to be exploding everywhere. So. Uh, I saw something the other day that over 50% of the world's consumption of whiskey is in India. <laughs> so it's <Wow>. quite, quite <laughs> surprising. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, what, what's it like being part of the Tassie industry? I imagine it's quite exciting. Oh, it's so exciting. I mean, it's changed so much in such a short time and we're just seeing it go from strength to strength. I mean, even in just Tasmania alone now, I think there's over 
80 distilleries, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. Probably not all of them producing single malt whiskey, but there's a lot. When we started in 2007, there was only four. So a lot's changed in such a short time, but it is still such a young industry, um, but definitely starting to become quite recognised, especially with awards and and that sort of thing on the world stage. What started with Sullivan's Cove, didn't it? Yes, 2014, Sullivan's Cove won the best whiskey in the world and everyone had their eye on Tasmania after that. So that was really good. Yeah, it is a really exciting time. It feels sometimes like there's all these new distilleries and there's so much whiskey coming out. But then you think there's a saying around how Tassie produces less whiskey than Scotland loses in evaporation in Angel Share. (laughs) So when you think about that, we've got such a long way to go, Mm. but we are known for our quality of spirit, which is, you know, it's really exciting to be able to get out into international markets a lot more in the next few years. Mm. Yeah. And is part of that to do with, so Tassie's climate, but also access to just the resources that create whiskey, Um, I, I hear like we're in just a really good spot in terms of um, yeah, where we are in the world and what, and what we have access to. Yeah, I think it's absolutely to do with our location and our climate and our ingredients. I think it's also because we're predominantly all small distilleries in the scheme of things. And so we can do things on a smaller scale, which makes a more premium and craft and intentional product. Hmm. The Scottish distilleries are pumping this out by the millions. And so everything is much more mass produced, much more um, efficient with their processes, those kind of things. They don't have the control that our distilleries do. So I think um, that plays a big role in our quality. Hmm. So true. How you said they don't necessarily have the control. I'll never forget when Mark and I went to our first sort of international distillery in Japan. We couldn't believe it when we went in there and we just saw like this is a very large distillery in Japan. I won't say which one, but we saw a couple of people in there, a couple of distillers, well, in lab coats basically, just turning some buttons like a a big control board. Um, There was no interaction with the spirit at all. And I Mm. thought, wow, this is, this just shows me how small we are in Tasmania and how handcrafted and boutique we actually are. I was blown away. Yeah. Wow. Oh, fascinating. I'm never going to think of distillers the same. There's like (laughs) lab coat versions. (laughs) Look, I'm sure they have a very um, calculated way of doing things and it's all proven and tested, but it was just so interesting to see. Mm. We're so hands-on here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. And um, Beck, what's it like being uh, a kind of a newcomer to the, the industry? Because obviously, um, Jane just shared a moment ago that when she started, there were four distilleries. Now it's super competitive. What's it like being in that kind of startup space for, for whiskey? Yeah, it definitely is becoming more competitive. I think it's also a really exciting time as there are a lot of brands doing really interesting things. I think it pushes you to do things properly, to really stand for something. You you know, I feel like you can't just come out as a newcomer these days with a bit of whiskey, but not really much else. You've really got to have amazing product. You've got to have a great brand. You've got to have a great team to drive it. So I think it's more challenging in some ways, but then also these guys like Overeem and Sullivan's and, and they've all paved the way for distilleries like Warps Harbour. So it's a little bit challenging, but then it's also we're in a very fortunate position as well. Excellent. One thing with uh, having both you guys that I wanted to get an idea of is what it's like being uh, women in the whiskey industry, because I, I imagine many people would, would think of it as typically being male-dominated. Um, so first, is, is that the case? <laughs> and then uh, what's it been like uh, for you guys? Yeah, um, well, it's certainly changed in my time. <laughs> um, honestly, when I uh, I said to you earlier that I went to my first whiskey, malt whiskey convention when I was 18, I reckon there was probably three women in the room, me being one of them, uh, with at least 100 other males. So um, it's definitely changed since then because, I mean, Beck, you know too, when we go to conferences now, it's you'd, you'd almost say it was 50-50. There's so many more women getting into the industry now. There's a lot of female distillers all around the country, but, yeah, it's definitely changed. I've actually We've actually watched our demographics um, change over the years too with our sales um, in particular uh, and who's buying our whiskey. So it is still a high percentage of men between the age of anywhere between like 28 and 35 is our biggest market actually. And that's males, but it's definitely grown for women as well. Yeah. Okay. Have there been any unique challenges being a woman in the, in, in the industry? Look, I think um, definitely at the start when there weren't that many women in the industry involved, uh, I specifically remember when I used to 
go around to bars and bottle shops in the sales role with Overeem. A lot of people were surprised to see a 20-something-year-old girl, young girl, going into their bars and bottle shops and promoting this beautiful, high-quality Tasmanian single malt whiskey. So it definitely did... It it wasn't challenging in a negative way, but it was definitely a surprise to people. And I guess sometimes I had to overcome that when I would enter a place. They'd be like, what's this girl doing? Um, But that's certainly changed. For, for the better nowadays. I uh, I feel like absolutely there's more women in the industry, but I still feel like there's so much, so far to go with the market. Like I feel as a woman in the industry, it's been, it's been incredibly exciting and being supported by a lot of other women like Jane in the industry, but it, I still get a lot of comments and potentially it's because we're a new distillery and I haven't earned my stripes as a woman in the industry, which whether I have to or not is, you know, part of the question. But it has been challenging for me, actually. I still get a lot of, do you drink whiskey, dear, by men and women. And even recently, I actually got asked that by another woman in the industry, which just made me wince a little bit and no harm was intended absolutely from her part, but it just made me think I was just standing next to the two other founders of the company and they didn't get asked that and they never would get asked that. So I do find that challenging and it may be a matter of um, it's, I believe it's harder as a woman to earn the respect in the industry. So um, it's not that people don't think that I should be there, it's just there's still, for me personally, I've experienced this massive stigma. And then even at the whiskey show in Sydney that uh, Tim and I did recently, I got a lot of comments about being a woman from the consumers. Wow. And a lot of it was, um, again, no harm intended, but it was things like, oh, you're a founder. You're like a surprise. You're a founder and you're a woman. And I was like, of course, you know, and I mean, I'm in my 30s, so that doesn't help the situation yeah. either. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely still feeling that that there's there's challenges there for sure. But it's also, for me, an opportunity and I'm really proud to be a female founder of a whiskey company because I think we are changing the face. I'm seeing it in my community. I'm seeing a lot of women, uh, friends and um, other community members who never would have tasted whiskey before are coming to events and I'm able to talk talk through it with them and... For me, I just love that. I get such a kick out of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's so so interesting to hear Beck's perspective on Mm. that Um, because maybe you're right in saying that I probably don't feel it anymore because it's been a long time. And you're a very respected figure in the industry, which is absolutely credit to you. But as a newcomer, my experience has been quite different. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Mm. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that, Beck. One of the things that I'd love to get my head around a bit is, is basically the science of dis- distilling. So I've read a number of books. I still can't really make head or, head or tail of it, <laughs> but I love tasting it. And um, So could you guys tell us more of the kind of process and setup that goes into creating a single malt whiskey and then maybe some of the unique things that your distillery is trying to do? And you don't have to give away the, the trade secrets there either. Sure. So... When uh, we make our whiskey at our distillery, we do everything from start to finish. So that means we start by making a wash, which is like a a beer effectively without the hops. Mm -hmm. Um, It then goes into a fermenter for seven days and then it gets double distilled. So distilled in um, one still first and then in the smaller still before going into the barrel. So that's the very short version. We've got a very complex switchboard in our distillery, which shows the process beautifully. It looks like you could just hit the go button, but absolutely you can't. Rob, our head distiller is very... Put your trench coat on. Yeah, put, yeah exactly, coat. exactly. Yeah, put coat. the lab coat on and hit go. No, it doesn't work like that, um, thankfully. Yeah, so that's the way that we do it at our distillery. Um, and then, of course, it sits in the barrels. So we do everything from very start to um, all the distilling and then the barrel maturation on site. Um, in Bishno as well. A couple of things that we do that is slightly different to other people is Rob's got a master's in Antarctic science from before his distilling days and he's also a real details guy. So he has grown up, you know, making his own cheese and farming mushrooms and making all these incredible things. And so he's um, got a lab which sits right in the middle of our distillery and he actually cultures his own yeasts from scratch. So it starts under the microscope and he grows it up and up and up. Um, In uh, distilling, traditionally use dried yeast, which we do in the majority of our whiskey. However, we've got a few limited releases now that that are in cask that he's made using this fresh yeast. And so the differences 
between the dried yeast and the fresh yeast is really interesting and really significant. And so that's something that because we're a small distillery in Tassie that we can do, like the big Scottish distilleries could never have the time, energy, resources um, to be able to do these things or focus, but for us we can and so we will. Another thing that we're doing that's slightly different because we're a coastal distillery, maritime distillery, we try to do everything as hyper-local and coastal as we can. So we've got a peat sauce. So peat's uh, what's smoked with the barley to make the smoky flavours and whiskey we spoke of earlier. And um, we're using a coastal peat that's just from about 10 minutes down the road from a farm. We literally go down with buckets and <laughs> dig it up ourselves. Oh, awesome. Um, and Rob's got a uh, handmade a smoker out of a big milk drum that he um, sits in the driveway at the front and smokes. And it's it's very different to like a highland mossy peat. It's actually made of, so it's all organic matter, but it's made of like saltbush and melaleuca and coastal reeds. And so it's a really sweet, salty peat. So that's something that we're doing, which is again in barrels in a small a small number, but we're waiting eagerly for that to come out um, in 2024. I can't wait to try that. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> About you, Jane, what, what goes on over here? Um, yeah, very similar uh, production style to warps. Uh, yeah, seven-day fermentation uh, with our wash and then we are double distilling as well in some Tasmanian-made copper pot stills and maturing for anywhere uh, 100-litre casks or larger from anywhere from five to 15 years. One of the things that probably sets us apart a little bit, I guess, is we really pride ourselves on releasing single cask whiskies. Um, we're probably one of the more well-known distilleries in Australia for releasing predominantly single casks. So that just means whiskey that is uh, bottled from one cask at a time. So, um, But we are also doing a lot of fun marriages and cask finishes as well. Uh, Mark and I really like to put our spin on things, but absolutely our core range of whiskies are single cask releases. Yeah, excellent. So I've got a curly question for you guys, and it's the cautionary tale of Nant Distillery. To me, that whole story, from what I've heard of it, sounds like something out of Breaking Bad or something. Um, you guys, That's pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> are you happy to share kind of what happened there? Um, oh, look, I'm happy to sort of comment on what you could find on Google, I guess, about the, the whole situation. But unfortunately... Um, Many people were involved in a barrel scheme whereby they were offered a decent um, return on their investment after a period of the whiskey being put down in barrels and then I guess after maturation, after full maturation, they were guaranteed a buyback or a, a return on their investment. But unfortunately, the person behind organising the investment scheme was dishonest and um, I believe that the whiskey in the barrels wasn't was already pre-sold um, through their distillery and through um, cellar door channels and things like that. Yeah, so a lot of uh, uh, investors lost their lost their money or lost their investment altogether or received whiskey at the end of it that wasn't matured. Um, there was uh, there was probably a lot to it, but pretty, yeah. pretty disappointing for the industry as a whole mm. um, when something like that happens because I know there are some reputable uh, distilleries that are running barrel investment schemes that are in fact very appealing and have worked well for many investors. Yeah, and we're still seeing, I mean, this was uh, quite a long time ago now, but we're still seeing the flow on effect effect from Mm. that. So people tend to joke about it more as in like they're not typically worried, but it pops into their mind a bit, you know. So we've sold um, about 100 private casks at Warps Harbour to um, people who have their own barrel, it sits on the shelf at Warbs, and after the two, two and a half years, they get um, their bottles of whiskey with their name on it, and they love it. You know, it's something that's really special. People go in together with groups, and people have been incredibly trusting of us, and obviously the whiskey is there. Um, but <laughs> it you know, is real. <laughs> but people do joke about this yeah. hand, and it has impacted the distilleries and continues to um, for years. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, well, well, it's unfortunate. Which to is hear. a shame. But yeah, you can understand that people would be a bit spooked by something like and that. And fair yeah. enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. So. But I would say overall, people are still absolutely trusting mm. um, to come in, or at least for yeah. us to come in. They meet us, they talk to us, they see the barrel on the shelf, they can taste it. So um, they've been very trusting of us, regardless of what's happened. Mm. 
Yeah. All right, well, let's change gears a bit because um, <laughs> um, alongside the crime that happens uh, in these rare cases, there are a lot of fun things that are happening as well, particularly uh, in the Tassie scene from what I understand. Um, could you guys tell us some of the fun events and opportunities for collaboration that are happening in your spaces? So, uh, Jane, you've got something called like the, the Malt Vault. Um, yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, the Malt Vault is something that um, we've launched uh, at our distillery to try to bring people of the community in. We do a lot of events all around the country, but we thought it'd be really nice to open up the distillery once a month on a Friday evening and host masterclasses, whiskey tastings with other distilleries being invited. So, for example, uh, the one we're doing at the end of this month will be with Sullivan's Cove. So, it's been a really great way to show the camaraderie within the industry. Um, we're looking forward to doing a Warbs one before the end of the year as well. Actually, another great event we've got coming up, uh, Warbs and Overeem, we are presenting at Sapphire for some guests. Uh, we're doing a really exciting collaboration with the Point to Pinnacle at the end of the year, oh, actually. Wow. So I don't know if the race is on your bucket list, but we'd uh, love to have you in our, uh, in our Overeem team if you're keen. We are actually pushing a 50-litre barrel from the Rest Point Casino all the way up to the top of Mount Wellington. It'll be in some sort of a cart or something. Yeah, um, we won't be just We won't just be rolling it up. Um, and that's to raise money for charity So and to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Point to Pinnacle. So, yeah, I mean, we're presented with so many great fun opportunities all the time in this industry and that's... Um, one of the main reasons I love working in this industry and have been for so long because um, of all the great partnerships and opportunities we're always presented with. Mm. Yeah, and Beck, could you tell us about the um, the Sapphire experience at Freshener? Yeah, absolutely. So Sapphire is having a whiskey weekend and they've invited uh, Warbs Harbour, they've invited Overeem and Lark Distillery as well. And so over the course of the weekend, there's lots of different events and some are collaborations and some are individual events. Um, so we're only 30 minutes from Sapphire, so and we've got a great relationship with them. They bring guests to do tours three times a week at Warbs Harbour, so uh, we've got a beautiful relationship there. So over the weekend, Sapphire are going to bring some guests up to Warbs Harbour. We're going to run a series of tours um, for each of their guests, and then that evening, on the Friday evening, we're going to meet with Mark and Jane from Overeem, and um, Overeem are presenting, I think, five whiskies throughout the night. Um, Tim and I will be there to support. And then the final whiskey is actually going to be a marriage of Overeem and Warps Harbour, which we've never Ooh, done before. No. So that's just for the Sapphire event. So actually last weekend, Mark and Jane were up in Bishno with us and we and we were having a play, um, blending some whiskies together. So it's <laughs> it's really exciting Sounds to exciting, be able to collaborate yeah. together in the industry. Um, so the, the Sapphire weekend should be great. And also with Bill and Lynn Lark, who are doing a masterclass. And so lots of good events throughout the weekend. Yeah, and There's also so many different events that um, we can do together in this industry. It's very collaborative. So Taz Whiskey Week each August is a really good example. There's multiple events throughout the week. And pretty much all of the events have, multi, you know, four or five distilleries at each event. And then we're all presenting together to guests that's a really nice way to collaborate together and to get to know other distilleries and everyone's been incredibly open and um, forthcoming with information and and exciting and encouraging each other. So that's great. And then also whiskey is amazing because there's room to collaborate with other um, industries. So, for example, we've just done a release with Apsley Gorge Vineyard. So we've used an old Pinot Noir cask. Um, we're also doing one with Bishno Beer to do a stout cask release. So... Within the industry, there is um, a lot of opportunity, but then also it's it's really as big as your imagination can go. And we love collaborating with other Tassie industry and other Tassie businesses. Yeah. Oh, that's super exciting. Yeah. Mm. And yeah, and you found that similar sort of thing, Jane? Oh, 100%. When Beck was talking, I was just dreaming up all the uh, <laughs> different collaborations you can do. But yeah, we've done a lot of um, great ones in the past. One, one to look into, I won't go on about it now, but is... Uh, our Dome Argus. So that was a release that we did with a polar explorer from Queensland. So definitely one to look up. Yeah, <laughs> no, I went along to that event and uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> Whiskey f almost from Antarctica. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah, very exciting. Um, just to follow on from that, uh, what excites you about the, the future of your work? I, I imagine you're pretty optimistic about where the whisky industry is going. Uh, yeah, we, um, oh, we're super optimistic and 
it's exciting because every year moving forward, we've got more whiskey and that's the main thing. Um, as you know, you can't just uh, make whiskey and it be ready overnight. So it definitely is a patience game um, and you never quite know what your demand is going to be in the coming years. So it is a little bit hard to plan, but we've definitely planned for the future um, because one of the things that Dad said to us when when Mark and I, I guess, took over Overeem Distillery was you can never make enough. It just makes sure you, you don't get stuck where I did and not have enough. So we are definitely, well, we feel as though we're really prepared for the demand in the future and having enough whiskey for us uh, in the coming years really opens up a, a lot of doors. Like we're really excited to um, start exporting and we're already sort of dipping our toes in the water now. It's really something we're going to be focusing on in the coming years. So that's super exciting. Wow, that's big. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, we'll, we'll shift gears a little bit now as well. Um, so you guys are both Christians. I've known you both for a long time. Um, how do you guys think about this, uh, like the the finer things of life of which whiskey kind of falls into? So do, do you have like a, a life philosophy or a theology that shapes the way that you approach uh, enjoying and crafting and creating these sorts of things? Yes, absolutely. I think... Whiskey is absolutely one of those finer things in life. But on the whole, my approach has been, on reflection, I suppose, is whatever you feel like you're meant to be doing, do it with all your heart. Do it well. And so I guess there's two elements to that. One is what you're meant to be doing. And that's not always an easy thing to know. But as a Christian, I tend to have a real peace around what I'm doing at a certain time and also a comfort in knowing that the right doors will open and the right doors will close. So uh, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have known that I was going to own a whiskey distillery in Bishon and be living there. Um, and, you know, I look back at where I am right now and think I couldn't have dreamt this up, but there's been a series of things that have led me to this place. And honestly, I couldn't be happier and I feel like this is exactly where I'm meant to be. So for me, there's a little bit of the trust the process and trust the pathway, which comes from having a faith personally. But then there's also, I guess, a philosophy of quality over quantity. So that works well in the whiskey industry in the sense that um, we wanted to do it really well. Tim and I, we been going for, you know, more than five years, but for the first three or four, no one really knew about us. We were very much underground. We were very much just kind of head down, bum up, working away because we really wanted to come out with something that we were really proud of, something that was high quality for the long term, something that was going to hopefully have a, have a positive impact with the people that we're around on our community. We feel that we're building something that is great for our community. We have had beautiful support from them but also a product that people love and um, a brand that people love and engage with. Yeah, well said. That's just <laughs> so similar to what um, I would say as well. I like, couldn't be happier right now. I feel as though uh, the path that my husband, uh, he's also my business partner, um, owning Overeem, um, we just feel so blessed to be in, in the position that we are. Um, and it's probably worth just rewinding a little bit and just explaining a bit about the story because Beck sort of said just trusting the path and it was just it's just been so amazing for us um, to see how we couldn't have dreamt up where we are right now. So basically when Dad started Overeem in 2007, I was obviously so excited to be a part of the business and uh, everything went, it was so successful between particularly 2012 when we launched our whiskies until 2014 when you, Sullivan's Cove won best whiskey in the world. But we were all uh, winning, uh, you know, getting some really great recognition on the world stage uh, through awards. By the end of 2014, all the whiskey that we had uh, fully matured and available was selling out within minutes. So we really knew at that point in time that we had to increase production really take the brand to the next level. Uh, but as Dad <laughs> had started Overeem as a retirement hobby, it wasn't really his plan to to do that with Overeem and to really um, have a, another busy business because he'd done that um, in previous years. And so he actually reluctantly sold Overeem Distillery in 2014 and Overeem and Lark Distillery merged because Bill Lark actually sold Lark Distillery in 2014 as well to the same group of investors. Uh, and at the time, it was 
sort of sad, but it was also a great opportunity for me to then go and work um, at Lark and Overeem as the sales and marketing manager there. But it was during those years that I was working there, about three years, that I realised it didn't feel like the right path, as you were sort of saying, you just, you feel content with where you are now. And when I was uh, there, I didn't feel content and I didn't think it was sort of supposed to be my path to be with that particular company at that particular time. So I left and that's when Mark and I started a family. We've got two young boys now and we decided to start our own distillery, which was Sawford Distillery in 2016. Now, that also wasn't meant to be the plan, which I never knew. <laughs> but by 2019, we actually got a knock on the door from the owners of Lark and Overeem. And they asked us whether we wanted to buy Overeem back. And it was just amazing because one, to be presented with that opportunity, which we never would have dreamed of happening, um, to get the family brand back, to get yeah, um, Overeem thing. back was just not only so special for Mark and I, but for my dad, my whole family, like extended family. It was such a good news story for the industry and for our customers, just everything about it. I just, I look back now and go, how did that happen? <laughs> I never would have pictured it. Mm. That's really exciting and nice the way that it all kind of unfolded for yeah. both of you. Um, I have a slightly curly question. Um and that's mostly thinking about the kind of ethical side of it, because um, obviously being in the alcohol industry, it's not all good vibes. Um, there are a lot of people out there uh, doing it tough as a result of alcoholism, these sorts of things. Um, like so many things in life, uh, it's one of those things that can be used for, for good or for bad. Um, but how, how, do you, how do you go about it knowing that uh, basically people can go down that sort of path with the wider alcohol industry? So how do you think about it from an ethical point of view, I guess? Yeah, sure. So um, we're fortunate to have high quality, high end whiskey um, as part of what we do. And so for us, uh, I guess the em emphasis of alcoholism isn't as evident as it could be in um, other areas of alcohol um, or other production of alcohol. Um, our whiskey is, yeah, high price point, premium, um, and it is supposed to be, I guess, enjoyed slowly. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, you know, around $200 a bottle. It's not the kind of thing that you would chug down. It, yeah, exactly. In it's not intended <laughs> for that. Absolutely. It is delicious. And that, it yeah. is delicious, but it, yeah. Um, and that's really important to us. It also, um, you've got to think about it obviously in the way that we market it as well. That's really important. So it's not, you can't have fun without alcohol or without whiskey. That's absolutely not the message that we're sending. It's more about Taste, tasting the flavours, appreciating it, enjoying yeah. it, um, those kind of things. But obviously that's up to the consumer at the end of the day. Mm. Um, it does weigh, you know, it does weigh on me. You obviously think about these things. Um, before Tim and I got into whiskey, there was a period where we were in e-commerce and we had an opportunity to get into um, a different kind of alcohol brand. But that was very much positioned as more of a party alcohol and, and that kind of thing. And it just didn't sit right in my gut to be pushing that. Mm. Um, and so I'm very happy that, you know, we made the decision to not go down that path, absolutely, because that's personally important to me. But we are fortunate in whiskey that it's the high-end high -end product. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah it would be, <laughs> be a shame, wouldn't it, like for, for people to use it recklessly um, and without appreciation for the work that goes into it. And, yeah. Um, another question uh, on your faith, what sort of role does that play in terms of what your week looks like? Um, so your professional life and your conduct and like the way you guys run your businesses. Uh, does that make much of a difference there? Um, yes, absolutely. I think it's uh, twofold. So one day to day in terms of the way that um, you engage with staff and suppliers and all those kinds of things, um, you know, if and when you get onto the topic of, of faith and those kinds of things. Um, you know, I want those people to have a positive experience of Christianity because of me, um, not go, oh, okay, is that the way that Christians, you know, behave? So I think there's a responsibility there, absolutely. Um, but the other side of it for me is, as we touched on the bigger picture, it's the I believe that I'm meant to be doing what I'm doing right now. I might not understand why or the impact that I'm having or will have in the future, but um, it's the overarching guidance of I feel like I'm going down the right path and if not, 
um, I'll kind of find out <laughs> along the way. So yeah, that's there's an overarching um, gut feel of we pursue opportunities, and if the door shuts, then that's yeah. that's okay. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So a sense of peace about it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that sense of peace is super important in our business, in particular. Mark and I don't get hung up on things too much. So, you know, for example, we might be looking for. A, a site for Overeem, a new home for to place our distillery um, from where we currently are. And sometimes it's disappointing because things don't happen, but Mark and I forget about it within 24 hours, I tell you what, because we always sort of go, oh, well, that wasn't meant to be. And it's such a... Um, freeing. It, it's so freeing because our, our team members, our staff, are often like, aren't you so disappointed about that? And we're like, no, nope, it obviously means that something better you know, or something more appropriate will come along. So, yeah, I think our team probably really love that positive reassurance from Mark and I that it's all good and, yeah, we're, we're quite often presented with opportunities, like we said earlier, that you couldn't dream of. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Oh, lovely. And um, do you guys do the whiskey stuff around the clock? I think you mentioned before, Jane, that you have specific times off and rest and those sorts of things. Yeah, lots of rest but lots of work. You've got to try and find a good balance. Uh, I think we've, um, oh, look, we really prioritise our family life as much as we do work. So work for us is something that we love and we're so passionate about. So it's also very easy to uh, let work consume you because you love it. I mean, some people do that because they have to, but we actually um, sometimes really have to say to ourselves, okay, that's enough work now. And it's it's normally just because we we love it and we see more opportunities to, to go for. But spending time with our two boys is super important to us. So we always try to maintain as much balance as we possibly can between work and life <laughs> with the kids. Yeah, lovely. Uh, how about for you, Beck? I imagine living up uh, the East Coast uh, gives plenty of opportunity to go and explore and make sure you're not always working away. Yeah, that's right. We're in a very similar position to uh, to Jane in the sense that we've, we, we're married and we work together. We've also got two young boys, similar ages. And so it is a juggle and we're not really clear with our hours necessarily because some days I'm busy and Tim will go and pick up the kids or, you know, that kind of thing. Lots of tag teaming. There's a lot of tagging or I'll work at night or, you know, when someone's having a rest or whatever it may be. Um, so there is a lot of a lot of a juggle between home and work, but also I wouldn't have it any other way. Mm. And we do have um, a lot of beautiful family time. We we try to always have the weekends together. Um, and then being in Bishno, you know, there's not a lot to do up there. So we do a lot of walks on the beach and bike riding and and kind of the simple things in life mm. which um, like a night in the caravan in the backyard <laughs> <laughs> that's right we sleep in the caravan in the backyard because it feels like we're on holidays um and the kids love it we cook pancakes you know and so it's kind of making the most of the little things um and also we try to you know steal long weekends away to hobart whenever we can um yeah so it's lots of little moments and you know and that works really well for us yeah, lovely. And so for someone wanting to find out more about whiskey and single malt, uh, do you guys have any books or resources or recommendations for what someone should do to explore the wonderful world of whiskey? Um, yeah, so one of my favourite books is uh, The World Atlas of Whiskey by Dave Broom. That's probably one I would definitely recommend. If you want to know more particularly about Tassie whiskey, the Tasmania, it's called The Devil's Share, I think it is, by Bernard Lloyd. That's a good one too. Mm. Yeah, I've got that one. You do? Yeah. yeah cool. <laughs> uh, I'd say for me, the way that I learn about uh, other distilleries is predominantly through podcasts, actually. Oh, wow. Um, I listen to Drinks Adventures podcast with James, um, which is really good. Uh, but there's quite a few out there. And also, I think distillery tours are absolutely invaluable. So, so true. Yeah, I was people say that. love <laughs> yes. the firsthand experience. Um, you know, any distillery tour, absolutely. When they come through with us, they can taste the whole process. So you can taste the barley and then you can taste the wash, you know, before it's been in the fermenter, then you taste it after it's been in the fermenter and then before it goes into the barrel and then obviously the whiskey at the end. So I think that's the most informative way. And the way that you start to appreciate whiskey, we get so many people come in who go, oh, I just, I'll have a taste, you know, but by the end of a tour, they absolutely are like, I so appreciate the flavor so much more. Now I understand what goes into it. Um, so definitely that. And then 
you know, stuff like whiskey shows are amazing because you get mm. to go. So many at once. So many different whiskies mm. at once. And you get to talk with people who, you know, you can stand there and talk to someone for 10 minutes or you can just kind of taste the whiskey and off you go. But it's really like interesting being able to compare all the different types of whiskey. So that's something that um, way back when, before I was into distilleries in, you know, that's what I do, go to the whiskey shows and just taste lots of different things. Mm. Take yeah. a notebook and Figure jot, out what you jot like. it down. Yeah, exactly, because it's a great way. Yeah, now they it's like provide them way. now, don't they? they yeah, they kind exactly. Of expect that. And yeah. there's apps now, and you can rate all the whiskies, and you make comments about what you love and what you don't love. So it's actually very um, easy to remember when yeah. you get home to know what you've actually loved. Yeah, mm. and it's an affordable way of tasting lots of different ones. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and like Beck said, hearing from the distillers themselves and the owners of the distilleries is great. Good advice. And you guys both offer tours. I think you both mentioned it. We um, sure do. By appointment only for us. I think yeah, ours is all bookings online. Yeah. Cool. Well, Beck and Jane, it's been a real delight to have you guys on today. Thanks so much for joining Deeper Questions. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you, Aaron. Well, that was a lot of fun, for me at least. I don't know how you went with it, but I think there was plenty in there that speaks to our common experiences and passions. We all have our hobbies, our guilty pleasures, our things that make us feel alive, right? I'm so thankful to Jane and Beck that they could take us behind the scenes of an industry where it's very much a labour of love, not unlike an artist or a creative. I guess that's why distilleries and craft breweries are in the same bucket as many other artisans, where there's a beautiful blend of dedication to quality, creativity, innovation and experimentation to combine the very best raw ingredients into something that blesses people beyond our quotidian, everyday existence. Obviously, it's a lot of hard work as well, and there are still lingering issues that could be better, as with any industry, but I found Beck and Jane's experiences refreshing and great to hear their passion and their honesty. I love that there's a lot of room for collaboration and camaraderie in what is no doubt a highly competitive industry. And every time I've gone to a whiskey event, they're fun, they're friendly, they're delightful experiences that I always look forward to, which is a credit to the industry. I'm also really thankful that Jane and Beck shared their personal values and the spiritual faith dimensions that shape their work and their outlook. In Christianity, it's had a pretty interesting relationship with alcohol over the centuries. There have been temperance movements and social climates that have led many churches advocating for prohibition, regulation, and self-restraint for the common good. And there are denominations that still practice teetotaling today, the abstinence of alcohol, rejecting it at a personal and community level for a mix of personal convictions and preferences. But then you also have a rich history of brewers and winemakers and distillers that have been markedly and explicitly Christians. Famously, Martin Luther's wife, Catherine von Bora, brewed beer, ran a brewery, and even ran tours through her house. Apparently, she was an incredibly industrious and resourceful woman who Martin Luther used to affectionately call Lord of the Pig Slop, and she would return serve just as well as part of their playful marriage. Anyway, that's a story for another day. But isn't it interesting that Jesus himself decided that his very first miracle would be turning water into wine? Not the other way around, water into wine. And this was exquisite wine we're talking about here. Wine upstaged the rest of the wine at a wedding of all places. And so I think that that says something important about God's abundant nature. The creativity and beauty and enjoyment and the pursuit of excellence are weaved into the fabric of the universe. And that we as humans are right to seek out those things that bring us gladness of heart. And that these things can be savoured, appreciated, used for celebration and part of what makes us human and a gift from the hand of God. But these things also come with responsibility. Knowing that it can be addictive, that it can be abused, can be drank to excess can be something that leads to violence and anger, loss of control, and a vehicle for making poor choices and judgments if it has mastery over you. And drunkenness is still a massive problem in our culture. It can lead to all kinds of outcomes. Domestic abuse, violent altercations, men taking advantage of women sexually, drink driving deaths and accidents, the destruction of communities and many other painful things. So many things in life are like this good things that can become ultimate things if we indulge excessively or put too much stock in them. Whether it's an identity marker, a form of escape, or something that becomes an obsession, good things have their limits in how much they can fulfil us and how much we can expect from them. It's interesting that one of the most important sacraments or or rituals practised in Christianity involves wine. The Lord's Supper is an important ritual practised in basically every Christian denomination, And it represents the sacrificial life and death of Jesus, his body and blood. 
given for us. But I find it fascinating that bread and wine are used as these symbols of God's love. The bread, as in give us this day our daily bread, very much an everyday essential about our raw needs and survival. But then you also have the wine, something for special occasions and not in any way associated with survival, but an enjoyment and relationship and celebration and thriving. We need both. We need to have our needs provided for, but we also need to be able to experience things that can amaze us, that bring us delight and warmth and joy, and dare I say it, a slice of heaven. I'm not kidding. The Bible talks about heaven being like a wedding banquet, where the wine will flow, the food will be abundant, and guests will be honoured and treated like royalty. We're all invited, and our accommodation is sorted. You can read the Gospel of John if you want to see what I mean. Another thing I was curious to explore was the etymology and the origin of the word spirit in this context. Apparently it started popular English usage in that 14th century. They meant divine substance or volatile substance. And by the 16th century, its understanding had expanded as something to make people more active or energetic, animating a person, inspiring them with courage. It was even used in the sense of supernatural agency, as in to be carried off or away in secret and was used especially in reference to kidnappings for the American colonies. So I think you can see the paradox there, with it being something that both enhances and brings out our humanity, and yet robs it at the same time if we lose control. A mind-altering substance not too dissimilar to stories of possession and folklore. And obviously, it's that spiritual aspect the entire time. But I'm curious to ask, what gives you courage? What animates you? What makes you feel alive? And are you thankful for it? Well, maybe you're experiencing something of the divine substance in the cosmic sense, and that could be worth exploring more. And we're here for that at Third Space. You can find out more at our website. Thanks for listening to Deeper Questions. If you like this episode, then subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or you can check out some of our other content at thirdspace.org.au.